Hello everybody and I'm really looking forward to this latest edition of Super Teams in which we're going to review our uh, startling predictions for the Ryder Cup uh, which were 100% wrong and just go through what we think happened and I'm very fortunate and privileged to have uh, Darren Timms with me with us today and I'll ask Darren to introduce himself in just a moment and of course David Warner is here who went out there and cheered on Team Europe on the final day of the Ryder Cup last week but first of all over to you Darren so welcome to the podcast and could you just tell us a little bit about yourself sure so firstly Thank you for having me, guys. I very appreciate being invited on. A little bit about myself. Basically, I am a PJ professional. I've been a PJ professional for around 10 years. Before that, I was fortunate enough to be picked for England and played for England as an amateur. I played on sort of multiple satellite tours, including sort of the Alps Tour, Euro Pro and Clutch Tour. I, I've grown up sort of in the era with Matt Fitzpatrick, Matt Wallace, Nathan Kimsey, Callum Shinkwin. They're some of my colleagues and who I played with and was in squads with. I've actually got a, a, a guy I used to travel with is Ludwig Aberg's current caddy, a guy called Jack Clark, who played on one of the tours with me. And uh, yeah, so I'm now, I spend most of my time coaching and playing the odd event like I am this week. Uh, Fantastic. Well, you're very welcome here. And uh, we're really looking forward to having someone who knows a lot about golf to explain to us what happened in the uh, latest Ryder Cup down in Rome. But Dave, you were there, so perhaps you can share with us your experience of being there for the final day. Yes. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Darren. I was there on Sunday. I was there on the final day. I travelled over to Rome on the Saturday uh, and got to the course early on Sunday morning and tried to pick a spot to watch the players come through. And first thing I'd, I'd like to say, just to acknowledge, is just how well organised the whole thing was. I've been. It's my second Ryder Cup I've been to. I was in Celtic Manor in 2010, I think that was. This was incredibly well organised. This this event, very friendly atmosphere. I think the the Italians did a great job and really really enjoyed it. And obviously the the result turned out the way the way I wanted it as, as a European as a European supporter as we discussed last time uh, and but it was tense it was tense it was a tense day and there were times where the board was full of red and it looked like it took so but you know it was when I got there Europe only needed what four points I think to 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 win mm. the Ryder Cup and that was all set up on on day one really with the four nil opening salvo from Europe in the four and then I think we did well in the four balls as well and then carried that into day two and I think the USA only won their first session at the end of in the second session of day two so it created a really commanding lead of what was it ten and a half to five and a half I think going into the final day so I think as a you know a non-expert in golf it would be really interesting for me to get a view of an expert in golf about what actually happened in that first that first foursomes because that seemed to lay the foundations for the whole week so just wondering Darren what insights you've got into what made that a, a success I'm definitely far from an expert but I'll take a punt at it a couple of things really it's easy in hindsight but the Europeans just came ready they became ready for this tournament this Ryder Cup couple of things, obviously the format of foursomes being first is a format that the Europeans are comfortable with. It's not something they play in the States. It's something that's played a lot, especially in the UK. So it's a format we're more happy with. I believe it was nine out of the 12 American players hadn't played for the last five weeks, which isn't always a bad thing being a bit rested, but sort of, you know, the Ryder Cup, you want to you have some competitive juices flowing going into it. The th other thing that kind of is, is the... Hidden, unhidden secret, should we say, is Dodo Molinari, also known as Eduardo Molinari, who has played in the Ryder Cup, and his brother of Francesco Molinari. He he's got an engineering degree and has a, still plays on tour, but has spent a long time setting up a company that based is around stats and statistics in golf. He helps something like thirty or forty players on the tour, one of them being Matt Fitzpatrick, along with some others, and was kind of like the first guy to really get into the detail and look at um, strokes gained and how to set up a golf course and pairings, etc. And using those kind of strategies, they they made a brilliant, brilliant play on the first two holes. In one of the press conferences, Roy McIlroy joked that they were asked why were the Europeans so good on the first two holes, and uh, Roy McIlroy joked that basically all the Americans slice it was his joke. 
And it's actually steeped in a little bit of truth. They looked at how the Americans hit the ball. Most of them favor a left to right ball flight, which is obviously a good ball flight when it's under control. So they pinched it in to make it a bit more of a dog leg left. They grew the rough in on the left. And they played lots of one hole matches for apparently $100. And Luke Donald made them play the first hole and the first three holes for $100 each each day, apparently. Mm. And it turned out that the Europeans were fantastic through the first hole. They um, they actually, it took till I think, the fourth session for the Americans to win the first hole in any any format. They uh, We won the first hole 39% early on. Overall, sorry, 39%. 46% was a half. And the Americans only won it 14% at a time. That means you're, the Europeans were one up through the first hole every single time, just through how they set the pin up, the tees up, and how they put the rough in on the left. They, it was then actually even more successful on the second hole. So... Not only did we start with foursomes, not only did the Americans come in a little bit undercooked, some of them never actually seen the golf course until that week. We then set up the first couple of holes to make sure that there was blue on the board. That's the saying they use a lot to try and get the momentum early. And when you're playing pairs event and you just see that nice rush of blue, it's no real surprise that Europe were able to sort of gain the momentum and basically hold on to it. I think they caught the Americans on the cold, basically, and it took them to sort of day two and two and a half, three to actually start to wake up and realise they're in a game. On that course setup, that's really, really interesting what you said about growing the rough, because that's not something you can do really quickly because grass has got to take some time to grow. So at what point, how far back does this go down, this, this preparation? Because at some point the course was selected, and that, I know that's several years in advance. And then at some point, the captain selected. And I know Luke Donald was selected about, what, 18 months ago? Correct, something like yeah. that. And then they've got to start looking at, OK, how can we take advantage of the course setup? So when would Luke Donald, I mean, you may not know the answer to this specifically, but when would Luke Donald be looking at the course and figuring out those kinds of details about we want to grow the rough on this side oh it's a really interesting point basically one of the again other things i think europeans are trying to do at the moment is all of the rider cups recently have been on new golf courses so marco simeone um celtic manor uh, glen eagles was a newly built golf course um i'm sure i'm missing a few out in between what they've tried to do is where they've played them on new golf courses and held events there i think marco simeone has only been held a tour event for about five years the Europeans have collated that data. They've been they've studied every single shot of every European player who's played at that golf course. What that's allowed them to do is take this stats-based approach and look of where's the favourable pin placements, where's the place to hit it, where can we do, where can we best access the greens. On the first hole, I believe they worked out that 180 yards was the correct distance to try and attack it. So any player who hit a fade was meant to have hit a freeward off the tee. Any player who's hitting a draw could hit driver to get a little bit more around the corner. They were basically given these stats and this information on selecting the clubs. To actually then build the course setup, I guess that would have been an evolving thing. I guess maybe even pre-Donald's era would they starting to be thinking about how they want to set the golf course up. You'll have the fundamentals of getting the stands in and getting the pin placements and stuff like that. But then they would have you know, had, had a look through there. The Italian Open there this year and last year, I think McElroy played in one of the last two or three years, they would have been very important to try and get a feel for how they wanted the golf course to play. So the the Italian Opens would have been the test run, seeing how the golf course is playing, seeing how they can then taper that to the uh, to Europeans' advantage. Uh, Paris National being another example of a relatively new golf course that we've really set up to make sure that it took a lot of Americans out of play. And yeah, that would have been an evolving thing, right down to, I'm guessing it wouldn't have been the week of, but we would have known, exact, for example, final round, put the pin on the right half of the first green. The guys that miss it right are going to be caught in that right rough and they're going to struggle to get to a back right flag. And those kind of things can be can be made. You then got to check stuff like the weather forecast, etc. So uh, yeah, that, that preparation would have gone on at least over the last five years and then definitely within the last sort of the last year and the last six months building into the event. That's that's really interesting, that level of detail. And as having been there and, and looked at the first tee and how that was designed, so for the first tee for the first hole, the, 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 the course itself has a lot of undulations and it allowed for sort of natural amphitheatres to be created around some aspects of the course. So some of the holes had like a natural, I think 17th was a great example of this, where it's basically the, the hole is at the bottom of a hill. Yeah. And so the whole thing's like an amphitheatre, creates an incredible atmosphere. And the first tee, although there wasn't like a natural hill there, they, they built like a semicircular thing around it. These, these stands were like football stadiums. It's like a football stadium. So 
And of course, the support that the Europeans then get from that was incredible because I'd say there was probably about 90% European support to 10% US support, something like that. That's what it felt like anyway. And so what I'm thinking about from an individual perspective where we're trying to manage emotions, and I can imagine the very first tee shot on the very first day is probably the most nervy shot that anyone's going to play that week. For, For managing emotions... Where you've got a course that's set up to put blue on the board, where you've got home support in quite an intimidating atmosphere for the away, for the away uh, players, what's that like as a golfer? I mean, you, may, you may not know exactly what that's like, but what do you think as a golfer standing on a tee? What's that going to be like for their temperament, for their mood, for their emotions? First team nerves is a, is a common thread with golfers. It's not something that I ever tell players goes away. Any of the guys that I coach, I always tell them that you'll never lose the first team nerves. Take it all the way up to the Ryder Cup and some of the most skillful and experienced golfers on the planet are still going to experience nerves. Obviously, you build skills and you build experience to try and deal with those nerves. In terms of how the European approached it, I think it was brave. I think it was very clever. They've been obviously told that those 1% are, are tilted in their fashion, in their direction to try and help them. But also I think that Donald, one of the great things he did is playing these one and three hole matches up the first and up the first three holes. Is He, he set it up that you've got to try and win the first. Most people just want to try and make contact with the ball on the first, just get it off the tee. I remember Webb Simpson hitting a fat just over the ladies' tee at Glen Eagles. A lot of Tiger Woods at the K Club pulled it straight left into the water. So kind of moving the golf ball seems hard work on the first day of the Ryder Cup, I'm there to believe. But... I think Donald changed the mindset. I think it was a case of, okay, it's not about just, you know, just trying to get one away and then see how you feel and getting on after that. I think it was a case of, let's try and win the first. And that was a an aggressive and a great approach that clearly paid dividends for the Europeans. So uh, I can only imagine huge amount of nerves, but I think they were challenged and harnessed to actually, let, let, let's capitalise on that. That's an opportunity as opposed to a threat. And how would they go about selecting the pairings for those early holes? So the pairings, again, will come down to, very clever, we sent out some of our best players early, John Rahm, fantastic player, Masters champion. They'll go out early, you'll send some some, in, some of your, your, your bigger names, should we say, with the experience to lean on. But also you're going to select, especially in foursomes, especially ball flight led, if you hit a fade, if you hit a draw, if you're long off the tee or short off the tee, depending on your strengths is how they're going to um, create the uh, pairings. Justin Rose, I heard him say in a press conference that, I think one of the mistakes that he was alluding to for the Americans was you don't have to play with your best friend in the, in the Ryder Cup. You've got to play with the right player. Right. So all our 12 guys seem to bond and get on. Patrick Cantley and Zander Shuffley are a fantastic pairing for the Americans and done well, and they play a lot together, but they are best friends. However, we didn't go down the best friends route. We went down the best players to work together route, led by Eduardo Molinari. Again, quite brave because when you're struggling, maybe you want to look across and see your friend there. But if you know that guy's best suited to your game and you've covered all the bases between the pair of you, that's also a great way to go. And that's the way the Europeans went. Some sort of almost what looked like a peer random, like Lowry and Stracker. But they would have known, you know, this guy hits draw, this guy hits fade. This is his strength. This is his strength. Let's pair him together because of that. And I, I read or I listened to an interview from Donald about his pairings. And he said... He said something along these lines. He said when he was asked how how he selects his parents, he said, do they match up? Are they suited to that format of golf? And and crucially, he said, how are their personalities? And he was pushed on that a bit. And he said, take Ram and Hatton. He said, we've matched fire with fire. Two quite fiery characters. And he said, it wouldn't have been any good to put a fiery one and a quiet one. Because he said, John feeds off the energy that, that Hatton gives him. So I found that quite interesting that they're sort of looking into the psychology of what's going what's to spark the other person, what's going to complement the other person. And in that case, it was, yeah, two fiery characters together. Yeah, perfect example. Great pairing, by the way. Went, I believe, unbeaten in the Ryder Cup, both of them. Again, that goes back to preparation. John Rahm and Tyrrell Tyrrell Hatton were paired together at Wentworth for the first two rounds and they actually played the final round together uh, with a friend of mine, Nathan Kimsey. And so they would have been practicing how are they getting on together? How do they see each other's ball flight? Talking about the ball they use, talking about how they like to see the game. You've got two aggressive golfers there that are not scared of making birdies and taking a golf course on. You know, in Rome, they were gladiators, those two. And if you get that balance right, 
someone like John Rahm, you've got you've got to put fire with him. His coach Dave Phillips is a guy who leads the TPI, and I've had some good conversations with him. And he talks about John just has to be challenged. You can't ask John to do something; you have to tell him he can't do it. And as soon as you tell him he can't do it, he'll do it. So uh, there's a kind of guy that Tyrrell we know can blow quite hot. Yeah, that, that pairing could have gone wrong, but in hindsight, was an absolutely brilliant pairing. And you mentioned Wentworth and the the. I think there's something you want to talk about, about the importance of that. And I think what we're interested as psychologists in analysing this event is not just the individual psychology of the individuals, but how you... Golf's an interesting sport. How you bring 12 people together who are competitors with each other all year round. They're fighting against each other to win tournaments. And then you bring them together and create a team. And you do that in a relatively short space of time, right? So I think they're over in, in, in the Ryder Cup, at the Ryder Cup venue for about a week in total. Uh, so obviously there's been some preparation before that. And we know that Luke Donald took them all over there about two or three weeks beforehand, just for, I think, 24 hours or something for one practice round. Uh, and then, of course, there was the, the Wentworth thing. So what, what, is it, what is it that Luke's done to, to create to create a team, to create this sense of us? It's it's a great question and they've done it fantastically well, however they've done it. I think it goes back historically, go back to the days of Seve and Elazabel and when we, we, we narrowly missed out on winning the Ryder Cup and Seve went round the whole room and said, you can't be disappointed, you know, we've got this close to winning the Ryder Cup. Since then, we seem to have a European bond. It's very interesting. We don't play European sport very much, but for the Ryder Cup, they come together. There's not really many more individual sports than golf. You are on your own. You're on your own for you're on your own for you know 99% of the time. What they did is they had lots of meetings, as far as I'm aware, lots of bonding, lots of playing to golf with each other. The guys obviously know each other, but they're trying to beat each other week in, week out. At Wentworth, we they were very clever. The 12 guys were all paired together in obviously four three balls they played the first two days with each other yep they're trying to win yep they're trying to focus on their own game but they're getting used to each other the caddies are chatting they're seeing what clubs they use what how they like to shape the ball how long they are off the tee their strengths their weaknesses they're just getting familiarized with each other and that was two weeks prior to the event they will have played many many rounds to together before that but two weeks that's that's the only conversation that was going on at Wentworth it was a masterstroke by Donald to obviously contact or be working with the DP tour to make sure that they all played together it was great for the fans watching because you knew he was watching the Ryder Cup groups yeah. and and then you could really get a feel for how they were trying to play as I say three out of those four rounds John Rahm played with Till Hatton and they're playing competitive golf so the caddies, everyone is getting familiar with each other. And that can only help. That can only help. Once you know someone's game, you start to see their mindset. You can see maybe when their shoulders slump and how to pick them back up. While you might not do it that week, you can get an understanding and a feel for that guy. So the lead up, having that golf tournament, not only two weeks beforehand, not all, also together, just gave that Europeans that extra sharpness going into it. And that's something that the Americans clearly lacked with nine out of 12 players not even playing for five weeks prior to the event. And Jeremy, from a from a sort of team identity, from a cultural identity sort of perspective, this this trip that they made over there a couple of weeks beforehand, and they they played the course, and then they had this this evening where they sat around the fire pit sharing stories. Each one told a story about their life, their career, their background, where they came from, and so on. And you know, a few of the players have mentioned that in interviews about how, how important that was. And Rory McIlroy, a couple of things, he said, it puts us on the same level. I shared my vulnerabilities and inspirations. I got emotional. It was an amazing night. And he goes on to say, with Europe, we're all from different backgrounds. We have different beliefs. It's not like we can rally around one flag. So what, we can, what can we build a culture around? We can build it around our journeys in the game and what the Ryder Cup means to us. Uh, so you're starting to see something emerging there around this sort of sense of a shared identity i wonder what your thoughts were yeah so i think that there's a there's an approach which is called mutual sharing personal disclosure and the idea of it is that you get a group of people who you want to collaborate together and you ask them to share with each other something that's personal and there's research that shows that it has positive impact on cohesion excuse me I'll edit that bit out. There's <laughs> there's research that shows that it has a positive impact on social cohesion. So if we think of cohesion as having two parts, 
one part is social cohesion so do we get on with each other do we trust each other do we respect each other and the second is task cohesion so do we understand what we're all supposed to do what our role in this is and so mutual sharing personal disclosure has got some research that shows that it has positive impact on the social element of that and it's not new to do that kind of thing so the South African cricket team the Proteus when they started I guess it's probably about eight or ten years ago now they started to uh, reboot their culture and really emphasize becoming well they went on to become number one in the world for a number of years but to emphasize togetherness and belonging they did a very similar thing they went out into the bush and sat around fires and did some personal disclosures which all the players said was highly impactful for them afterwards and their their name the proteus well the proteus is a flower that can survive in the desert so it's, it goes dormant in the desert and then slightest bit of rain it starts to spring up again and and, and the flower appears so there's a kind of sim- symbolism in the name and the way in which they approach that and I suppose what you're trying to do with a team from a from a conceptual perspective is always to have a narrative that you build we did this because what we learned from it is this and and the experience that we had has changed our beliefs about the world and about each other and and I think it's quite a smart thing to do and I guess the risk with it is that it's too personal and people find that uncomfortable and that's why I think a lot of people shy away from that kind of experience they think it's too dangerous and so obviously in this situation Luke Donald must have done some pre-work around making sure that it felt safe for the for the players to do that yeah so created what we would call psychological safety where people felt psychologically safe to share to share their own feelings and their own stories and and that was backed up you know Shane Lowry said the practice trip was huge the younger lads got to feel comfortable around the likes of Rory John and Victor in other words around some of the bigger players and when we got together again it was like we'd never been apart so there's something there where where the the players are sort of acknowledging this acknowledging that it felt safe and it felt helpful and actually Eduardo Modernari said in that hour this is the hour where they shared the stories I felt like everyone got to know each other understand each other and feel part of something unique so we don't know the setup but the setup must have been pretty meticulous and pretty particular in getting pitching it at the right sort of level what do you think i believe the caddies were a huge part to play with that as well if i sort of reading between the lines and what i've heard i think rory's caddy harry diamond done a speech or spoke about rory and went through his life a little bit and explained it to a few of the guys the other side of it, not, not 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 the career highlights, not what he's won, but the personal struggles, the personal things. And I think that just helps create that team environment that the players are willing to, they're willing to open up to each other and, and include the caddies. It's a big part of that week is making sure that everyone is involved. I'm, I'm interested about the role of caddies in all of this and the extent to which they're involved in in being part of the team. When I work with the Great Britain Speedway team, we have the riders, but we also have their mechanics. And we also have the engine tuners. And what we've started to do gradually is integrate the engine tuners, engineers, and the, the mechanics more into, into what we do. And, and, but, but caddies seem to me to have a much more profound impact on how a player plays than a mechanic ever will in a, in a Speedway race. Is, is that a fair reflection they're an important person i I would say so caddies are are hugely important sometimes it's hard to sort of get a grasp on what a caddy brings because it's a very very individual role to the player some people just want someone to carry the bag and basically turn up and shut up is what they're told to do some of them are their their psychologists they're their traveling psychologists they walk alongside them they see them at their most vulnerable they they a a good caddy can see his player and know his player's struggling can see his player is is maybe you know anxious or nervous or too excited and then then you have to find out the relationship and and what relationship they want do you want someone to you know tell you you're brilliant all the time do you want someone to tell you the hard facts of you know this part of your game struggling it's a very very unique and individual relationship and every player's need is different then add that into the team element and it can be quite complex 
you've got someone like Billy Foster, who's one of the most successful caddies of all time, has caddied, that was his 15th Ryder Cup. I think he's the most capped person ever at a Ryder Cup, and he's, he's caddied at 15. Wow. And he obviously is very good. He's, he's actually worked with Tiger back in the day a little bit. He's worked with Seve. He's currently working with Matt Fitzpatrick. And they have to be a little bit everything. Sometimes a swing coach, sometimes a psychologist, sometimes a shoulder to cry on, and sometimes someone to give you tough love. If you get that relationship wrong, it can be very detrimental to the player. But it's very hard to pinpoint what makes a good caddy. It's more about understanding what the player's needs are and then the caddy fulfilling them. So, uh, yeah, a good, a good caddy is uh, worth their weight in gold, should we say, and, and very handsomely paid as well. Should right. they be very successful. And, of course, there was a little bit of controversy with Patrick Cantlay's caddy, LaCarve, having a bit of a altercation with Rory McIlroy. Accidental, Absolutely. deliberate, game playing. What do you think? <laughs> so... Having seen a couple of angles of it, actually, uploaded at first, I didn't think there was much in it. I think I thought he just walked towards Rory's line and didn't realise. Then when I actually there was a wide angle of it, I think unfortunately he's crossed the line there, the caddy. One of their unwritten rules is they don't become the show. And Joe LaCarver is one of the very best. He's actually Tiger's caddy on loan to Patrick Guntley currently. And he, he knows better than maybe what he did. The other interesting element is one of Tiger's best friends is Rory McIlroy. So it's not like these guys don't know each other. They are, they're good friends. They, they hang around each other a lot. And I think Joe LaCarva maybe crossed the line a little bit and it just can't continued from there. Having said that, they'd been wound up basically, well, for all, all 18 holes and maybe even the holes before that with the ongoing Hatgate saga. So I can understand a bit of frustration from the caddy, but unfortunately I do think the caddy was in the wrong in that instance. So, so let's talk a bit about Hatgate because for those who, who, who don't know it, my understanding of Hatgate is that uh, Patrick Cantlay refused to wear his hat or at least this was the claim uh, and this is somehow connected with players not being paid for uh, participating in the Ryder Cup and I believe that he may well have denied that that was the reason for not wearing his cap. But I'm interested from two perspectives. First of all, what's your take on it generally? But secondly... It seems to me that incidents like Hatgate and also this LaCava altercation with Rory McIlroy, these are the kinds of distractions that could affect a player. And absolutely. And so, yeah, how does that, how do how do players handle those kinds of circumstances? Absolutely, it's it's clear that kind of regardless on what fence you sit on by a Hatgate, whether the player should be played or not. It's not a great look for Team USA. It kind of shows them to be a bit fractured, to be a, a bit at war with each other. And this isn't something new. I'll go into the history of it a little bit in a second, but this isn't something new and they've never resolved it. For the greater good, they might just need to resolve it in favour of the players just so that they get the team united, whether you believe that to be the right or wrong thing. The the only other or sort of alternative take is it did seem to unite the Americans going into the final day. A lot more of them didn't wear hats in support of Patrick Cantley. There was a lot of denies of the story, etc., etc. And whether the truth is there or not, I'm not entirely sure. It's clear he does wear a hat for the President's Cup. He does wear a hat when he's sponsored to wear one. He doesn't. He hasn't wore one for the last two Ryder Cups. So maybe there is something in it. But it just didn't It didn't bode particularly well for them. It, it wasn't a good look. It wasn't a unified team look. Having said that, he was probably, along with Max Heimer, their best player. So maybe it inspired him to perform better. The official excuse he gave was that he was getting married and he didn't want a tan line. And having been a, a, a golfer who struggles in the sun sometimes, I, I can understand that excuse. But it maybe wasn't a very good one at that period of time. In terms of actually the players being played... That's, that's that's a difficult one. I'm a professional golfer, so I'm probably going to side on the golfers there. It's an unpopular take, especially for the avid enthusiasm golf fan or sports fan who, you know, playing the Ryder Cup for absolutely nothing. I think every player would play in the Ryder Cup for nothing. The yeah. problem is, is when you see sort of the staggering sums that the the USGA and the DP World Tour and all the others involved, the PGA of America, have earned out of the Ryder Cup. And when they sort of realise that there's, you know, we're talking almost into the billions how much is earned is the money funnel back in apparently it is but one of the claims was one of the players pointed to one of the executives on the tee and said you know i'll wear a hat when i get paid what he does um when you when you're surrounded by people learning off the Ryder cup and you're the one hitting the golf ball i can understand why they're frustrated do yeah. i agree that's a different thing but i understand the frustration the problem is is you go back marco mira two-time major champion has been overlooked for captaincy 
because he said the players should be played. David Duval has been overlooked for captaincy because he said the players should be played. Hunter Mahan played in the Ryder Cup and came out in a press conference and said he believes the players should be played. So anyone who's towed this line for the last 30 years has kind of been ostracised and moved aside. But this is, this is a rumbling thing. And they do get $200,000 donated to their charity. They do get all those things. They're handsomely paid. They're some of the richest people on the planet. I just think they get a little bit frustrated when they're surrounded by people earning money off the back of them. And if I was America, I think I'd just come to an agreement that let's pay them and just move this issue on. And then hopefully you get a bit of a more unified team. Is that the is that the approach that everyone believes? I'm not sure it is, but it definitely shows them to be a little bit fractured. And as I is say, it's not anything new. Is there a different approach taken by Europe then? Europe don't pay their players. They do get lots of bonuses surrounding it, similar to the Americans. Mm-hmm. But the Europeans if you ask me the truth, I think play on the fact that they love to play for free and they tell the Americans that we'd, you know, we'd, John Rahm, we'd play for free. We'd never, we need, we never need to be paid. We just love playing for Europe. And I think we're almost using their downfall as our motivation, if that makes sense. I'm sure if you sat a couple of them down and said, you know, we'll give you half a million dollars to play this week, I'm sure they'd probably accept it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that has become a defining difference, hasn't it? Absolutely. It's become a, a fault line between the US and the, and the European team. Uh, on on Cantley, what I will say about him, and I saw him come through on uh, uh, on day three, he was probably the player that looked the most focused and the most in the zone out of every player that came through. He just had this steely focused look in his eye, and he certainly on the whole I was on, I was sitting at. He he played incredibly well, so it didn't seem to affect him. In fact, it seemed to galvanise him, if anything. And I, I was I was very very impressed with him. So, so, so I'm that, interested. That I'm interested. So you say he looked like he was in mm. the zone and he was he was mm. concentrated. So could you just explain a bit more about what 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 are the behaviours you're talking about and and what what's the body language you're talking about? Yeah, so I can only go on what I observed, right? So we know we know what we mean by being in the zone, being being totally focused it's a psychological phenomenon of being totally focused it feels like time is almost going at a different speed to everybody else there's a there's a an enjoyment and a confidence that you know what you're doing and what I so what did I see what did I see well a lot of golfers that come through they'd be looking around they'd be looking at uh, the crowd maybe uh, obviously looking at their ball and talking to their caddy and and um, maybe getting distracted if there was a noise it, came marching onto the green or marching yeah marching onto the green after he'd played his second shot and he wasn't looking at anything else other than what did he have to do next so he went to his ball he marked his ball he waited for the other player to play his putt and then he lined up his putt and then he took his putt and then it went to within an inch of the hole and he went and picked it up and there was just no distraction there was just no distraction from what he was doing whatsoever it it was just i am completely on task uh, completely on task and nothing is distracting me at all. Uh, I just found that very, very interesting. So, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think that the, the, the science suggests that we have something between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day. And, and out <laughs> of those thoughts, they float into our head and then they float out of our head. Mm. And mm. about 80% of them are negative thoughts. So it's us being distracted by something which has a slightly negative spin on it. But but by and large, when we're in normal circumstances, we can focus so we can concentrate on something. We've all had the experience, I'm sure, where you know you sit down at your desk, you're about to do a piece of work, and suddenly the most important thing in the world is to make a cup of tea. Or or you've just <laughs> got to check your social media one last time and and you know we're, we're we're pretty good at finding those kinds of distractions. So being in flow is when the distracting thoughts are actually about the the, the game, and they don't pull you away from focusing on what the job at hand is. And that's what I think we mean by being present. There's a different type of intrusive thought that comes along as well, which is which is you know the the, the negative emotions that come from your chimp. So that sort of mind chatter, which is fearful, apprehensive, maybe angry at times, or just I want to get out of here, you know, and make you freeze. And I'm I'm interested, Darren, from your experience about how 
you know, how often do you manage to get in the zone and what does that feel and feel like? And are you aware when you're in the zone and, and do you have ways that you get back into it if it slips away? Definitely not in the zone enough. <laughs> I think every, every golfer, every sportsman wants to be in the zone more and wants to work out what that magical place is. It does happen from time to time. I had an old coach a few years ago. He used to say to me, you work hard for 50 weeks of the year to be good for two. And I think he means about those two weeks, basically, when you play those tournaments, that you are in the zone. How long does it last? Sometimes it's one hole. Sometimes it's one one nine holes. Sometimes it's one day. Sometimes it's one week. And then the thing about golf, actually, is, is certain parts of your game can be, should we say, in the zone. So you can, you can feel fantastic with your putter, and it all just becomes natural, and you walk up and everything goes in. But you can't hit your driver, you can't get off the tee, or you're struggling with your short game. So in golf, there's where there's so many component parts, you can feel very happy with one of them at a certain part, period in time. But it's very rare you get them all. When you do get them all, then yeah, then yeah, you're there. You're 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 firing on all cylinders. In terms of someone like Patrick Cantlay, he's he's an incredible golfer. Someone like Joe LaCarva wouldn't be caddying for him unless he's a very good golfer. I'm not saying you can judge a player on his caddy, but if Tiger lends you his caddy, Tiger rates you as well. He's he's recently in the last six months to a year actually come in for a lot of a lot of stick for being a slow golfer. I think at times it's a little bit unfair. I think he's he's kind of got brandished it, and once you're brandished it as a golfer, you're you're a slow player, and that's that's not that's not the type, the label that you want. So he may have already been prepping for this accidentally i think he's he's taken a lot of flack over the last year there's been a lot of trouble behind the scenes with player meetings and apparently he's caused a bit of disruption there and and whatnot so i don't i think he's had that ability to maybe ignore all the negative thoughts to keep all the outside opinions away people shouting at him for being slow and giving him a bit of hassle i don't think it affects him he's from a from a previous Ryder cup he's a bit like patrick reed who in terms of people sort of got on his back and he he sort of rose to the occasion. He's now off playing with Live Golf and, and not included in this Ryder Cup. But in a very different demeanour and a very different character, Patrick uh, Cantley seems to have taken that role of, I can ignore the outside distraction. If everyone wants to be negative around me, that's fine by me. I'm just going to walk at my pace. So I think in terms of this Ryder Cup, that may have helped him because like David observed when he was there, he, for me, was one of the standout players for the Americans. And... Interesting talking about him because he he was obviously involved in that incident on the I think it was the 18th green in the last match on the end at the end of the second day where the Joe LaCarva incident happened and for those that haven't seen it uh, Joe LaCarva when, when Cantley made a putt to give the Americans a chance of winning the hole LaCarva then steps into the middle of the green waving his hat ironically because of this hat gate business and. Obviously, that that was a bit. It got a bit close to Rory, and Rory was then sort of had a word with Lacava and told him to back off. But what's interesting about the clip, if you watch it, is Cantlay's just sauntering around in the background, paying no attention to it whatsoever. He's not. He doesn't go and say to Joe, "Come on, Joe, back off." He doesn't get involved. He's just like, well, he's in his own little world, living his own little world. And interestingly, the 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 clash that then happened in the car park afterwards wasn't between Rory and uh, Cantlay. It was between Rory and, and Lacava. Uh, the the car park scrap, as as it's as it's known, and Rory's now a car park scrapper. And um, this was another little fault line that was then created, wasn't it? Another little differential of now we've got something to fight for because they've they've wronged us, they've disrespected us, so we're going to fight back and all of this kind of stuff. So it, again, it's just interesting how. Cantley just removed himself psychologically from all of that, or was or was so in the zone that he just didn't even register on his radar. Yeah, it was it was clear. There's there's that wide angle clip where, and actually that's one of the reasons why it doesn't do Joe Lacolla much much favors. Actually, is he was just gone. You can see physically, mentally, emotionally, he was not in that situation, and he he wasn't going to take part in it. I don't know if he apologized on Joe Lacolla's behalf to Rory. I, that he probably did, if I'm honest. As you say, he just wasn't going to get involved. So, um, yeah, that's the one great thing about golf is you hit your golf ball and nobody else can influence you unless you let them. So, and I don't think he was going to let anyone influence him. So, he, yeah, he, he certainly was in control or at least appeared in control of it that week. Yeah, and for those that don't know, Rory, Rory and his playing partner both missed their putts. And so America, USA won that hole and I think won the, won the match. Yeah, that was on that. the last um, hole, yeah. Or at least... On the last hole, so it was. It could have potentially been a significant turning point, similar to we remember back at Medina, Medina, the the miracle in Medina, where uh, Poulter hits a putt 
to to win a match and give you a, a vital point that sort of sets up a possibility of a comeback. Uh, and it could have been that moment at the end of day two. And interesting, it was interesting how Europe dealt with that as a team. And sort of, in fact, I heard, um, whether I heard this correctly and whether this came from the player or not, Rory was apparently saying, let's just not beat them tomorrow. Let's smash them out of sight. Let's win, let's win this. Let's get to 20 points. Let's absolutely humiliate them. Now, obviously they didn't, but it wasn't about, oh no, they've come back. Are we going to survive? It was more like, let's smash them out of the park. So it was interesting. It's interesting how each team uses these moments to try to galvanise a performance out of the group. So I don't know if either of you got any thoughts on I that. I suppose they're coming in off the back of a very substantial win in Whistling, Whistling Straits two years earlier. And, um, you know, maybe that gives confidence to the USA, but also changes the attitude of, of the European team to be underdogs. I'm never quite sure from the outside how much to read into things like what happened two years ago because obviously there are quite a lot of rookies on both teams who who were not involved two years ago and different course, different players, different time. Uh, So I think that's something that you could frame in any way you wanted if you were doing the psychological preparation for for, uh, either of the teams. With my tongue firmly in my cheek, one of the things the Europeans tried to say is it was COVID and only American fans were allowed to that Ryder Cup. So with only American fans allowed there, the Europeans couldn't kind of get any any momentum going. It was very one-sided in the crowd. And I think they tried to frame that and say, move that one by, move that one by. It was a pretty substantial defeat for the Europeans but I think that's the way they viewed it is let's let that one go it wasn't you know it didn't have the crowds etc we go again so I believe that's what they tried to do I'd like to talk a little bit in a minute about the next Ryder Cup because obviously that's in New York State it's at a place called Beth Page and there is this feeling that because the Ryder Cup has been dominated by the home team so much in the last 10 years maybe going back even further than that how is an away team going to win and it's something I'd like I'd like us to explore but but before we do that I'd just like to talk a little bit more about team dynamics in this Ryder Cup and are there any lessons to to be learned and one of the things we talked about in this podcast the first one we did the the, the preview of the Ryder Cup where we got our predictions a little bit wrong but hey ho we thought it would be closer basically we thought the USA might nick it if anyone hasn't listened to the first one we thought the USA were perhaps better prepared than what they actually turned out to be we talked about body language and we talked about things to look out for to notice whether a team is being a team and one of the things we talked about was a very simple thing like in the pairings are the players walking uh, next to each other down the fairway or are they walking behind each other or in front of each other and I'm pretty sure that we saw on day one particularly the European team walking down the fairway talking to each other and the American teams, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps more in the four balls and the foursomes, playing very individual golf. And, you know, when we're trying to build a team, how significant are things like that? Uh, and, and I just want to add one other little comment about teams. When we talk about Team Europe, um, and we talked before about the caddies, at the, at the presentation ceremony for the trophy, the wives were part of the team. They, they were presented as part of the team. And then another group that was presented as part of the team that I didn't really understand, the guys who carry the um, scoreboard to each hole, they turned up as part of the team, as part of the team. So there's this whole Team Europe thing going on that is absolutely massive that I hadn't appreciated. If I wasn't there, I wouldn't have noticed it. So all these dynamics about creating a team, about including people, about let's walk together. And I don't know if that was a conscious thing or whether that just happens organically. All of these things seem important in creating this sense of we are together and we're fighting for each other. And as Jeremy and I have spoken to about, about this before, that can give you the extra, the extra few percentage points uh, in your performance that can mean the difference between winning and losing. Uh, and our stu- uh, Jeremy's studies that he's done has shown this, that you can get a significant performance boost if you believe you are part of something that's worthwhile. So, yeah, your thoughts on that? 
on all of that. Yeah, it's the team aspect in Ryder Cup is is fascinating. It's always quite funny when it switches to the final day and it singles, and it just it just feels and looks so much different when the players are playing on their own. One of the things that was, was spoke about and Justin Rose again mentioned, as I say, was. Europe played with the right player, not necessarily with their best friends. And that's definitely something that the Americans done. Getting the, the parents correct, getting the personalities correct, getting the dynamics right, walking together, showing good body language, having an awareness of your partner's body language, you know, building them up. They're all absolutely key things that has to have to be done in, in, in team golf. It's a very, very different feel. It's some players love foursome, some players can't stand it. Some players love four balls, some don't. But you play a certain type of golf. Foursomes is normally a little bit more conservative because you don't want to hit a bad shot for your partner. Four balls is more almost almost egotistical. I'm going to try and win this hole. I'm going to go for everything. So you have to get the blend between the players right. You have to get the team dynamics right. And that's clearly, for this Ryder Cup especially, something that Europe have done. Since kind of Paul McGinley's captaincy, having that thread running through of Team Europe has been has been key for them, and 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 Europe have done it very very well. So you still need to go and hit the shots, but I think you know that your playing partner's there for you. A funny anecdote that was mentioned in the Captain's Dinner TV documentary was when Thomas Bjorn played his very first Ryder Cup. He went out in the four balls with Ian Woosnam, and Ian Woosnam went up to him as a as a rookie that Thomas Bjorn was and said, don't worry about the first six holes. I've got the first six holes for you. Just get ready to play from the seventh. And Ian Wisdom was four under through six. So if you can find a partner like that, if you can find someone that will literally <laughs> just shoulder the responsibility, it's going to give you the opportunity to be successful. So, And if that dynamic's not correct, only slightly, it can go wrong quite quickly, especially in foursomes golf. It's interesting thinking about the focus on putting together the most effective pairings from a statistical perspective and given the characteristics of the kind of shots that they play rather than from a social friendship perspective because one of the things which we know leads to strengthening of identification or or, or people's motivation to identify with a team or a social group is confidence in our competence and so that's based around a belief that we have got this you know we've got the abilities to be successful and we're organized in ways which will enable us to be successful so whilst at a superficial level you might say well I prefer to go out with my friend I think from a performance perspective in terms of having confidence in the team that you're part of being told to go out with someone because you can see that you've been analytically matched with them would be even more beneficial. And, and, and I guess that's what's happening with the European setup. I'll just uh, one quote I want to read you. This is from Shane Lowry. He said, Anytime Luke Donald spoke, it was always short and to the point. It was never drawn out or directed at any individual person. It was, and this is the key point, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to win it. That whole idea of here's the confidence. Here's, here's the roadmap. Here's the plan. And and when we execute this plan, we're going to win. So really, really interesting about creating that feeling of competency within the group. That if we do this, if we follow these plans that I've laid out, we will win. Yeah, in, in really a, interesting. In a golfing context, you can kind of put yourself into that scenario when you're comparing players' strengths and weaknesses. If you've got a player that you know isn't great, maybe with his wedges or short game, that's not his strength, and he fears that shot and you're maybe going for a drivable par four, if your strength is trying to drive the green, but you might miss the green and therefore leave a player with a wedge shot, you need to try and play to your partner's strength. And maybe actually, I'm not now going to use my strength in trying to drive the green, and I'm going to try and play to their strength and leave maybe a longer shot into the green. So if, you, if you've got a player that wants to play to their strengths trying to drive the green all the time, and the other player, they're leaving them shots they don't like, that partnership might not work. They might be friends, but they're playing to each other's weaknesses. Whereas if you compare up players that actually we've got a guy who can drive the green and a guy who's really good with a wedge, these guys might work together. And that's about trying, as you say, find your strengths, find your competencies and linking them together. And that might not be in your best friend on the team. It just yeah. might have been the guy who's maybe linked to your strengths. And I think that's something that Europe were absolutely brilliant at doing. So it's an interesting combination, isn't it? Because on the one hand, what we're doing is we're being very rational and data-driven and asking the players to respond to that and buy into that. And on the other hand, we're doing that because we want to try and create and channel some emotions. 
And the emotions that we're looking to create are to do with togetherness and a sense of belonging and a sense of safety. So that if I do make a mistake, I feel like I'm not going to be criticised. You know, if you're on a foursomes, then I guess if the guy ahead of you messes up their shots. I mean, Darren, tell me. Yeah, it's it's the worst feeling. (laughs) It's the worst feeling in the world. And and actually, we saw it almost a higher level of it when... I think it was Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas, I believe, were standing on the tee with a drivable hole, 16 or 17. And Zach Johnson, the, the, the captain of the US team, actually came over and told, I believe it was Spieth, not to hit the driver. He then hit the freewood straight in the water. It's one of, <laughs> it's one of the most mind-boggling things I've, I've seen. I don't know what it was. I don't know the conversation they had. I don't know what the results of that conversation were. But that just wasn't the play. It was not the play to, 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 to pull Spieth off of that club and then hit it in the water. So not only fractions between the players, you've then got a fraction between the coach or the captain, should we say, and the, the players themselves. So yeah, hitting a bad shot in front of your partner, that's that's not great. That brings me on to a question I had had for you, Darren, where we've talked a lot about what the Europeans did well and and the togetherness they showed and the plans they had. And it, obviously, it's easy after the event to sort of focus on those good things, particularly when you're at one. I'm also interested in what do you think the Americans didn't do well? We've talked a little bit about body language and what did you observe there? You've just mentioned a little anecdote about how the captain intervened with disastrous consequences. What, what else did you notice or what did you notice about what the Americans really didn't do well? I believe hindsight makes us very wise, but they, they did make a few mistakes. Nine out of the 12 players not playing leading into the event was, was a huge mistake. That They also hadn't played that golf course competitively. The Italian Open is a DP Tour event, but it's something that the PJ Tour players can come and play. They they didn't play that event. They didn't play at least once in the last two years to see what the course plays like when it's when it's playing under tournament conditions. That that that's that's a problem. That's something that they 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 needed to overcome to come in hot, especially when they lose the foursomes four 0 That becomes a problem that you're not competitively. Yeah. You're not seeing the golf course as it is. The other mistakes they made is I don't believe they got the pairings correct. Jordan Spieth, while an incredible golfer, plays very well with Justin Thomas, but he played the foursomes and he's not playing well enough foursomes golf. He's he's struggling off the tee, he's not getting the ball in play, and he seemed to just be chasing it around the rough all week. And that's not the kind of player that you want to put into foursomes golf. So I believe they came in a bit undercooked. I believe the pairings were a bit questionable and they hadn't played the golf course in tournament conditions. If you'd have got those things maybe right, maybe they'd have got off to a faster start. Well, Nick Faldo said whether America thought they could waltz over here because they are bigger and stronger, I don't know. But they got a nasty shock. Europe were physically, technically and mentally prepared. They were ready. And I think that's pretty much what you were just describing, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. No better to know that than Nick Faldo. And uh, yeah, it was. It, it's bordering, if we're not careful, it's bordering on arrogance by the Americans to think they can just turn up and it's all right, we'll be ready because we believe we're ready. I think the Europeans caught them cold. I think the it's interesting that Fowler used the word sort of powerful, I think you said, Jeremy. And one thing we talked about before the event was the potential energy sapping nature of the course. It was 30 degrees heat, very hilly course. I didn't notice fatigue on the part of the players when I was out there. The, the, the European team looked fit. They looked capable. They looked energized. So I don't know what kind of fitness and conditioning work went on, but whatever it was, it was it was well suited to the conditions. One thing I wanted to to sort of finish up on really was to go to talk about the next Ryder Cup. And I think what we saw today and maybe, you know, back from, from Paul McGinley's day when he, he won the Ryder Cup, we started to see the European laying down templates for how to win a home Ryder Cup. As I said, this course was very impressive. The, the whole setup was very impressive. Little touches like there was a wall with every player, every European, the name of every British and European player and Irish player that has ever played in the Ryder Cup was on this wall. That that must be wow. must be a great feeling to see your name on that wall, right? Mm. The twelve players' names were on the bridge, so the bridge that they walked from the from their the clubhouse to the first tee. The 12 players' names are on that bridge, the 12 Europeans' names. What I noticed was the 12 American names were on the back of that bridge, so you couldn't see them. That was quite interesting. <laughs> couldn't see them as readily. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is Europe have got a sort of template for how to win the Ryder Cup, particularly when they have control of the conditions, control of the setup, and so on. The next challenge is to go to the 
opposition's territory and win the Ryder Cup. And the next Ryder Cup, as we said before, is in New York State at a course called Bethpage. I think it's a public course. I've just done some reading about this. It's an interesting course. And, you know, the players are already talking about keeping Luke Donald on. They want Luke Donald to stay on and to win. In fact, Rory made this, this, this comment in the press conference, our next challenge and the biggest challenge. He saw it as the biggest challenge in golf, actually, is to win the Ryder Cup in the USA. So how do we do it? And obviously, if we knew the answer to that, we would all be geniuses and being paid to manage the Ryder Cup team. But what do we think? What do we think are some of the lessons from this Ryder Cup, from previous Ryder Cups where Europe have been to the USA, from how USA did it here and therefore how not to do it? What are some of the lessons, given that the USA will be controlling the set course setup and so on? What are some of the lessons that could help Europe? So I guess from my perspective, the first thing that has leapt out of me from the stories we've heard here are to do with the use of data. And so I would imagine it's not just about being able to use that data again. It's about being able to keep moving forwards and find what is the next level of data analysis. And obviously technology is improving rapidly. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. So so use of data. The second thing I would say is is going to be around the sense of identity. So one of the advantages for the European team is that I think that that's something which is very centre stage for them. And obviously we know that it goes back historically. We've talked before about Olazrabal and Sevi Balesteros and that sort of uh, connection. I would imagine that the European team will continue with that They might also want to use the idea of not being paid as a wedge issue and uh, a point of differentiation. Um, So I I would say those two things are important. And then finally, just preparation, isn't it? Being bothered to go over there and learn about the course and practice on it. One of the things... Interesting you mentioned the the Elizabeth Ballesteros because... I was was in the team as a vice captain, primarily to give a lot of support to John Raum as a Spanish player in the team. But apparently he tapped into the spirit of Seve and told Seve stories regularly, which, of course, everyone was hanging on to every word because Seve was such an icon in Ryder Cup history. What Europe are doing is tapping into that rich vein of team identity that goes all the way back, right, right the way back to when Europe first became a team back in whenever it was 1979 and Ballastil started to become part of it so that's an interesting aspect the team identity Darren any thoughts on what it's going to take for Europe to win it's going to be tough it's going to be a lot potentially harder than trying to win at home I I think one of I'm trying to find some positives for Europe and I think there are plenty one of the things that I find interesting is that the Europeans have been playing the Ryder Cups on new golf courses so the Americans are not used to these golf courses what they're going to be playing is on Bethpage Black, the black course, I think it's called, one of the hardest courses in the world. And notoriously, there's a great sign at the entrance which says this this course is only suitable for highly skilled golf course golfers. So it's quite a unique golf course in that way, just trying to psych you out on the first tee. We've played that golf course. We played the PGA, I think it was, there in 2019. We have competed around that golf course before. We are going to be able to gain stats on that golf course. So while not entirely familiar with the setup, why not maybe playing it every week or whenever we needed to get there? We we do have some, um, I reckon at least two-thirds of our players will have played that golf course before. However, we've got to counter a uh, New York crowd, which uh, could be quite interesting, especially after some of the antics maybe at this Ryder Cup, which is a more, should we say, placid approach from the European fans. Um, I think New York could be... When you've got Nicholas Colsar on the first tee orchestrating the thunderclap, <laughs> that's, that was an interesting move from the Europeans. So I think we're going to see that times 10 over in uh, Bethpage. What, what access are we likely to get to that course? So we likely to be able to get access to that course to practice? I'm not entirely sure of the sort of the agreements, but I believe we can go and play it whenever we want to. I think our players will be, once you know you're in the team or you're looking like you're in the team, I think we'll be tipped off to you know, go and play the golf course. I'm not entirely sure if they are just allow any access, but yeah. I believe, yeah, sort of it would be fair too. 
So, as it's a pub, as it's a public golf course, you just go and pay and exactly that. Just just paying <laughs> queue from four o'clock in the morning, which I think you have to do when you park in the car park. Yeah, but yeah, we should have access to it because it was such a big events have been held there. Historically, we can go and get those stats. The SPJ might not want to give them out, but we can get them. Dodo and his team will be able to analyze that golf course, and that's something that I think the Americans are not. I think they've missed the trick with the courses that they've picked. We've played these courses competitively. And we can gain the stats on these courses. I don't think they even know where Rome was. Marco Simeone was going into this Ryder Cup. So I think that's I think that's something that's caught them cold. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, look, it's been really interesting having the opportunity to review what happened in the Ryder Cup in 2023 with you, Darren, and having some expertise and some input on what's actually happening in the world of golf has been fantastic. And also your insights, David, from your trip out there and the experience that you had. So I think I'd just like to thank the listeners for listening in and i hope you've enjoyed this episode and we're very much looking forward to the next episode which i do believe is going to go straight back to the rugby world cup following on from the quarterfinals which will be happening next weekend thanks everybody thanks a lot thank you 